This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Dear Lord, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ray Dalio. I could have sat and chat with Ray for hours and hours. His newest book is Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crisis, and it is a masterful three-volume set on what the debt crises around the world look like throughout history. He does detailed case stories about three of the biggest ones, the great financial crisis of 0809, the Great Depression, and then what took place in, in Germany. Uh, and then there are 48 case studies or 46 case studies about other debt crises. He really provides an education for central banks going forward as to what they need to do to avoid these sorts of problems in the future and when they happen, how to make them less painful. It's a masterwork, and I expect it's going to be on uh, central bank bookshelves for decades and decades to come. This is, would also be a good time to mention we have coming up Masters in Business Live with Ray Dalio, uh, and keep your ears open for that. We're going to do a live broadcast going over the book. You could get the PDF of the book for free. The Kindle version is $15, and this behemoth is about 50 bucks. So- a free PDF. It's hard to argue with that. With no further ado, my conversation with Ray Dalio. My extra special guest this week is Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates. Uh, out of his apartment over 40 years ago, he is presently co-chairman and co-CIO of the firm, which manages $160 billion in assets. Bridgewater perhaps has made more money for clients than any other hedge fund in history. Rather than waste a lot of time with the introduction, I just want to say, Ray Dalio, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me back. Before we get to the new book, last year you were here right after Principles came out. And knowing how you look at the world as a giant experimental learning opportunity, what did you learn on the tour to promote the book? I was I was surprised at how curious and interactive people were. Mm -hmm. I um, I went on social media, and that's a place that I thought I'd never go on, and um, uh, and I thought probably was a snarky place. And, a little, um, can be. Um, hasn't been for me, you know. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of curious people out there who are eager to learn, and I'm good people. I'm having great conversations with them back and forth. Uh, take a little bit of time to do it. And uh, so I was most surprised about those things. You embrace as part of your process both radical transparency and, and a pure meritocracy. If someone has a good idea, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Well, the markets teach you humility, you know. You're never 100% sure of being right in any way. And so that, what that taught me is that I love to have my views challenged. Mm -hmm. And so to learn the art of thoughtful disagreement, that's not a fight, it's a curiosity experience. That, that's a, a great phrase, the art of thoughtful disagreement. So now you write a second book. I, I have to ask, you go 60 years without ever writing a book, and then you put out two really, this is a really substantive book in three years. What, what is the hurry? What's the rush to get all this writing done so quickly? Well, uh, like my other book, a lot of the principles that I had in this book were written over a long period of time, a lot of the research. And then I was uh, asked by a number of policymakers and others uh, to write this book on the, for the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis because um, they said that there's no book 
to, that you can go to that really gives the lessons that happen over and over again. In other words, we're huh. going to focus a lot on the 2008 financial crisis, and that's good, but um, it's like looking at one case of a disease. If you really want to understand that how the disease transpires, you have to see pretty much them all and then understand how they work on average and how they deviate. And that was the purpose of the book. So the timing was the big thing and then a shove from other people. You don't want to get too lost in the weeds on any one particular financial disaster. What we're trying to find is the consistent thread, the best ways to respond to them, the best ways to manage them, and even heaven forbid, possibly avoiding them in the future. Fair yeah. statement? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. In this particular financial crisis, a lot hinged on bank capital. Mm-hmm. In other words, how do you rectify bank capital? Liquidity and how much ca- well, assets capital, they had the capital, relative to the Liquidity is different from uh, capital. But, but So in other words, basically, capital is on your income statement, what's your balance sheet look like? Mm-hmm. Okay, are you out of money? Then you get shut down. Okay. Liquidity is the money that comes in. You can have no bank capital and plenty of liquidity and be fine okay. if they don't have mark-to-market accounting. So like by going through the 1982 crisis, which mm-hmm. and by most measures was of severe or comparable severity in terms of that, one of the big differences was they didn't have mark-to-market accounting. Mm-hmm. So because they didn't have mark-to-market accounting, the solvency issue wasn't as big a deal because they didn't account for it as being insolvent, where the liquidity issue was. So my point is that when you go from one to the other, Mm -hmm. you start to understand what levers and what patches. So the whole notion is, look at the one on average, what's the typical one, Mm -hmm. and then look at the deviations and see what causes them. And then you understand how these things work. And that's what the book's about. So when we look at the 0809 crisis, we see most of the banks had a lot of capital, but they also had a ton of assets leveraged on top of that capital. How significant is that leverage ratio of of capital to additional leveraged assets? Well, it it, it tells you how much of um, a downward movement in the assets you could take, right? Mm-hmm. If it's if it's a bank is leveraged ten to one, and the average assets go down ten percent, you're in trouble. Uh, you're out of money, right? Mm-hmm. That's the accounting. Um, and if you don't account for that, like in 1982, that period of time, you don't count for that exactly that way. You mm-hmm. treat them differently. Mm-hmm. Then you're really dealing with a liquidity case. But these things happen over and over again. The same basic structure happens over and over again. And I thought it was really, really important to have a book that shows what that classic disease is like, how it works. One thing leads to another in a certain way. And then to show all of the cases. So it shows all 48 cases of bad debt crises over the last 100 years. And you can go into them, see them one by one. And then it takes you through three classic ones in detail. It takes you through them pretty much almost day by day. So you can viscerally feel what they were like. And you could um, almost imagine what you would do on that day. Um, it starts with the, um, it does it in a sequential order. So in the 1920s, the inflationary depression um, of Germany's Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. And the reason I put that in is because inf- depressions can be inflationary or deflationary. And in order to understand what makes the difference, what makes them inflationary versus deflationary, wanted to put that in. But the sequence is similar. Then, then we go 
That's the end of World War I and the period in between. That's interesting. And then we go to, at the, after World War I, we had the 20s. And with that, we had the setup for the 1930s Great Depression. I love the way you structured this. Three segments. One is the archetypical debt cycle. The next is some detailed case studies. And you look at the Great Depression, you look at the Weimar Republic, you look at 08, 09. And then you come up with 48 additional case studies. Each of these are a different volume in what effectively is a three-volume set. Tell us the thinking about this and, and tell us about the feedback you've gotten from people who had to manage the 0809 crisis. Well, I believe the same things happen over and over again, and it's like a disease. If you don't watch all the cases, you won't understand them. It's kind of like doctors in emergency room. They do a 24-hour shift just so they can see the disease run its full course over and over again. Over and over again, right? And then you make the connections. You know how these things work because mm -hmm. they're classic. They all happen basically in the same way. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I did. That's why I put all of those case studies in there as a backdrop, and then I put the template. The template's just 60 pages. You read it, and you get the template. Um, yeah, no, no. The, People, uh, Ben Bernanke said Ray Dalio's book is the most read uh, is a must read for anyone who aspires to prevent or manage the next financial crisis. Larry Summers said a terrific piece of work by one of the world's top investors who has devoted his life to understanding the markets and demonstrating that understanding by navigating the 2008 financial crisis. Um, Tim Geithner said. It's an outstanding history of the financial crisis, including the devastating crisis of 2008. This that, that's an amazing list of people who were actually actually there and, and running this. And, and Hank Paulson is another person who, who had some comments. So, so anyway, they, they, I think it's, um, I think it's accurate. And the most important thing isn't the book. The most important thing that I'm really trying to get at, is the mechanics of the disease as described here. Because if we can understand and agree on the mechanics of these things, mm -hmm. we make a giant leap forward. A lot of the mechanics are not agreed to, and they're not studied. They don't look at cases. For example, at the time, there was a lot of argument that printing money would bring back a hyperinflation. Wave of inflation, yes. Right? But which, which showed a fundamental misunderstanding of what showed happens. a fundamental misunderstanding because when when more money comes into the system at the same time as credit is contracting, mm -hmm. the actual amount of purchasing power is not rising. And so what causes inflation is when more money is spent than goods and services are produced. Mm -hmm. okay? And what's happening at these times, is that money creation is making up for the contraction in credit. So you're you're jumping ahead to the beautiful deleveraging. Let's go through the six steps as you outlined in the book. And just a quick overview. The early part of the cycle, the bubble, the top, the depression, the beautiful deleveraging, the pushing on a string, and then normalization. Is, is, did I get that more or less right? That's right. And um, in... Basically, most cycles work the same way, but there's when you hit a zero interest rate, then you have the big one. Right. Okay, so what happens is in the early part of a cycle, uh, the amount of lending that takes place, 
produces a cash flow which is greater than the debt service payments on that. So that's a virtuous lending because credit gives buying power. Sure. And depending on how you're using that buying power, if you're using it to create income that's greater than the debt service payments, it's a self-reinforcing positive cycle. Mm -hmm. That normally happens in the early part of the cycle. Then it pushes asset prices up. And what happens is that uh, people start to extrapolate those things going forward. So as the debts continue to rise and they believe this is going to go higher and higher. Forever. In other words, the belief in um, the miracle of the new thing. Right. And maybe the miracle of the uh, the new Amazon or the new Tesla or it's the nifty 50 in other mm-hmm. years. In other words, that other world. And that there's not a careful calculation in terms of what could be paid back. We start to get into the bubble stage. The bubble stage is also um, in, accompanied by shadow, the development of shadow banking. Is and, that consistent always? Always. We saw shadow banking very much in 08 09. I was not aware until I plowed through this that there was a shadow banking system uh, in the Great Depression. There was a shadow banking system repeatedly throughout history. Th- repeatedly throughout history. The way it works is the banks are regulated and they're controlled and they're safe and they're overseen. But there are innovations that come outside of the banking mm-hmm. system. For, for There's a, a shadow banking system now, you know, in other words, it, uh, private lending that takes place outside of the banking system in various ways, and it's not regulated. And there's an incentive to go outside the banking system because the banking system being regulated and being controlled can't make as much money as going outside the banking system. Safer but, but capped. Uh, safer but capped, right? right? Watched over, um, but you know, not necessarily totally safe. But you always have the going out to that, and you always have the development of new vehicles, always new vehicles, and they grow in a very fast way. Doesn't mean they're not healthy, but they grow in a very fast way. And you see a growth in that, in lending, that becomes at an unsustainable growth rate that feeds on itself because the middlemen make money on making these kinds of loans. Sure. Um, those who are buying them have them go up in, in value and everybody is happy. At that point, what we always try to do is do the pro forma financial statement. In other words, how much cash is going to come in and come and you don't have, uh, you have a problem. At and a certain point, see, the lending exceeds the ability to service the That's debt. right. And in addition, you come to the late part of the cycle, you know, when there's not much capacity to grow as fast, mm-hmm. but the markets continue to di- discount a fast growth rate. The funny thing about markets is that they discount what they've experienced more than what's likely. So, like you would imagine when an economy is really depressed, that by and large that they would discount that it would be, pick up because it's at the low part of the cycle. Or when, when you're running into the late part of the cycle, they would say it can't sustain that particular growth rate. And they certainly can't sustain that growth rate on a lot of debt, but yet the pr- their price to discount that. And so the, the irony is asset prices are higher. There's much more leverage in the mark in the system. And so why would asset prices be higher or credit spreads be lower when there's a lot more leverage and the price of everything is higher? Doesn't make sense, but that's where the bubble is. These are the good times. These are the great times, it seems, right? So so then you get the top and then bang, the next stop 
is depression? Well, most typically than the top. The top usually comes through a combination of a tightening of monetary policy because you're later in the cycle. Are the central bankers historically always late to the party? Is there anything they could do to sort of slow it down in real time? Or has history shown they always are are out of step? History has shown that they're pretty much always allowing the rate of growth to be rate faster than the rate of capacity to produce. Mm-hmm. And so we see a shrinking labor force, We excess labor. We see a shrinking utilization of excess utilization of capacity. Mm-hmm. You see those types of things that to put on the brakes enough ahead of the capacity limitations um, you know, hardly ever takes place. They can't, they don't get it right. And and that's partially related to this economy, but it's also partially related to the asset prices. Mm-hmm. The asset prices go first before the economy goes. Right. So private equity competes with public equity and everything. And so you, like in this cycle, you've seen those asset prices go down and projected returns of all those asset prices go lower. You see the duration of the assets lengthen. Duration means also price sensitivity, mm-hmm. Lason. Um, longer bond, more sensitive than the price. To, to the movement to of the interest rates, right? Interest rates. Okay. So the interest rate, um, so all assets become more sensitive. And then what happens is, classically, you have enough of a tightening um, to create the crack. That usually also happens when they... Cash flow is not in um, not positioned because there's too much debt relative to the cash flow, and it starts in the periphery of the credit markets, and then it works itself down through that. So, cycles, are you suggesting it starts in the shadow banking market and then works its way into the mainstream? Yeah, uh, so you get typically. defaults. So what we saw in 08, 09, these non-bank lenders, the model was uh, underwrite mortgages to sell to securitizers. They started going belly up in pretty big numbers in 06, 07, long before you saw any problems with, with the big banks. That, that's typical of all these cycles mm-hmm. because at the periphery, there's more aggressive lending. It's unregulated. The Makes leverage sense. Think about the investment banks being more leveraged than the uh, traditional banks, by way of example. The traditional banks are all part of the party. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Post-Glass-Steagall yeah. now, yeah. Every, everybody's in the same hot tub together. Yeah. All of these cycles, the upward cycle is self-reinforcing. So Upward- let, let's get to the, I want to jump to the beautiful deleveraging, which is okay. your phrase, which I've always found to be somewhat of a romantic phrase about something that's a fairly dry economic process. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the beautiful deleveraging post 0809 and in previous cycles. Well, um, in a normal cycle, when you have the downward move to get it re moving on the um, positive side to get the good cycle going, you lower interest rates enough so that the present value discount rate for asset prices goes up. You make um, it cheaper to have new borrowing because the monthly payments are less because the interest rate is less. You And you make everybody richer. That's how the cycle goes. And and that seemed to have happened post 0809. Yes, it happens in all these cycles. Mm -hmm. That's the normal way to happen. What's different about the 0809, which is the same as the 1929 to 32 period, is interest rates hit zero. When interest rates hit zero, the game changes. Okay? Because monetary policy cannot operate that way. 
And so two times that century, that happened. And that's when... 20th century or... or... 20th century. Mm -hmm. That's That's the time it happened. And then what that means is the game changes. And the game then has to be that you print money and you buy financial assets. Central banks have got to do that. ZERP and QE. Yeah. And uh, and that do, they do that all over the world. And in that, since then, they've built, uh, they bought about $16 trillion. Central banks have bought about $16 trillion, wow. put about $16 trillion of liquidity out in the system in financial markets. And that causes financial markets to go up and produces plenty of liquidity. In, the, um, in that crisis, they also guaranteed about two-thirds of all of the debt in the United States. That, and that's, that's just an astonishing figure. You've been using 1937 as the parallel for today. 1937 was kind of a scary time in history. It was before the rise of Nazism. It was before World War II. A lot of bad things were going on in 1937. Why do you draw that, that parallel? Well, I think things happening, there's a list of things happening. In 1932, 1929 to 1932, as in 2008 to 2009, there was a debt crisis and that um, when interest rates hit zero and central banks had to print a lot of money to buy a lot of financial assets, which produced um, big rallies in the stock market and a big pickup in economic activity. And in 1937, the Federal Reserve started to tighten monetary policy a lot, and there was an interest rate sensitivity associated with that. Was it premature in 1937? Um, It's not so much premature as much as highly impactful. In my opinion, maybe a bit of both. Mm -hmm. Um, But the point at that time is that in doing that, uh, that contributed to the wealth gap because financial assets are owned by... People who have Wealthier financial people, sure. and poor people uh, don't have that. And it produced a wealth gap in which, um, like now, the top one-tenth of one percent of the population's net wealth is equal to the bottom 90% combined. Amazing. So, so there, was a, there was a giant wealth gap. And at that time, there's tension between uh, the left and the right. And this is true in all countries around the world. And um, so we have the emergence of populism. Mm-hmm. Now, four countries decided to go from democracies to dictatorships. That happened in Italy first, and then it happened in uh, Germany. It happened in Japan, and it happened in Spain. And that, that tension produced tension inside the country mm-hmm. and tension outside the country, and it produced a certain type of leader, which was a populist leader. So we have populism in other words, a gap there that I think is uh, very important to understand. Politics now is more important than at any time in my lifetime, and I've been doing this for 50 years. So what are we seeing in today's uh, today's um, world of politics between the rise of Trumpism and what we've seen in the Philippines and, and Britain and Brexit? Are you saying, hey, the world post-crisis is now dealing with a very similar 1937 a form of populism and leading to dictatorship? Yep. Uh, Populism is um, when a strong individual is brought in by a segment, disenfranchised segment of the population, partially because of economics, partially because of sense that their culture is being threatened and that there are 
it's anti-elites and it is nationalistic, it is protectionistic, and is militaristic, and the populist has a fighter mentality. So that's that's what populism. That's is. every financial crisis. It's the same thing. Well, in the big ones, in the big ones, you tend to get that polarity. So we have a situation that's like that. I think everybody would agree that the nature of this situation is like that. It's producing more uh, domestic conflict around that. Um, the the right becomes more right, and the left becomes more right left. And then also more international conflict. Another key element here in the 30s, which we're not used to, is that uh, you have a rise of a country to uh, of existing power to have challenged the exist the existing power. R- r- rise of a new country. China. So that was that was Japan versus the Europeans, or Japan versus the U.S. J- in the 30s. Japan ver- the, versus the European powers that had colonies in the um, Pacific area. A lot of them had colonies in that. And the United States um, had uh, interest there where they were competing for natural resources. And so when um, Japan then um, had its economic problems and wanted to grow, it needed resources to beyond Japan because Japan has right. very limited resources. Right. So it, it um, goes into, takes over Manchuria, northern mm-hmm. China, there is that competition, so now we're worried about resources and we start to put in you know, blockades and things. And then when World War II begins to bre- break out, really 1939, mm-hmm. so we have the same phenomenon happening in Europe where the rising power was Germany. It, it, it was hobbled at the end of World War I, hobbled and humiliated. And as a result of that, it became stronger and it became strong relative um, to the existing powers, and that was particularly the UK and France. And as a result, we had um, that conflict, that that type of conflict. And over the period of time, it first started economically. Like in Japan, they um, we would put sanctions in place, and eventually when it got um, more serious, then uh, Japan took advantage of that because they couldn't; those colonies couldn't defend themselves in right. Asia, and so they in- invaded those areas, and so expanding to also get ma- materials, rubbers, and things mm-hmm. like that. And then um, we had then uh, embargo their assets, and then eventually we embargo their oil, and that led um, to Pearl Harbor in 1941. So 39 was war in Europe, and 41 was um, Pearl Harbor and, and the beginning of that. I'm not saying we're going down that path along those lines, but I'm saying, uh, let's say key points. Okay, first, you're, you're later in a short-term debt cycle. So there are two debt cycles I'm referring to. One is a short-term debt cycle. I think we're acquainted with that. That's a business cycle. You have recessions. Economy grows because of stimulations. You run out of capacity. Central bank tightens monetary policy. Markets start to decline. Then the economy declines. And then you have a recession. And you do that over and over again. Those things are usually, uh, you know, maybe 10 years in that vicinity, Mm -hmm. a little less. Then you have a long-term debt cycle. And the long-term debt cycle is um, the accumulation of those short-term debt cycle. But it kind of reaches its end. When first interest rates hit zero because you can't puff things up with interest rate declines anymore. And then you have QE, which is then the purchase of those assets 
to cause those asset prices to rise a lot. And with those asset prices rising a lot, you can't from that point have the same impact. I want to emphasize. Um, that's the pushing on the string. That's the phase. pushing. That's that's the pushing on a string phase, um, which is a wonderful metaphor. You try and do something and nothing happens. You push on it; it, it doesn't go into the system. Right. Yeah. And so, um, just let's take a moment here and realize um, that we have a system in which demand is produced by credit, mm-hmm. and that. Um, most people are long, in other words, and they're leverage long. Um, so the balance that you're looking for a healthy economy to obtain is sufficient credit consumption so that consumers are out buying, businesses are expanding, but not such reckless issuance of credit that things go haywire and you get the bubble and then debt cycle that leads to a giant collapse. Yeah. Can, how, how do you get that balance? Well, can um, is debt rising faster than the income to service it? That's a bad sign. Mm-hmm. There may be a lead lag, but at the end of the day, it has to rise there, mm-hmm. um, so that you have um, debt being debt service payments right. growing faster than the actual. Excuse me, the income growing faster than the debt service payments. So you're going to need that. The so if you have income element, growing faster, then you could service that. That's, that's a viable. Right. That's good. That's, that's a, a growth economy. That's a good economy. That's the way the capital market should work. So mm-hmm. when you have debt growing faster than the debt service payments, that's unsustainable, and at some point that stops, and you lose that demand. So that's point one. Point two is what is the power of the central bank to keep that thing going? To, in other words, repair that situation by lowering interest rates or buying assets to produce liquidity in, in the system to build it up because a debt is a promise to deliver cash. Mm-hmm. And when they put money into the system, it makes it easier to service that debt. It lowers interest rates, causes asset prices. So what is the capacity of the central bank? When we get into serious problems, really serious problems, we have a situation in which we can't service that debt mm-hmm. and uh, we're in a situation where uh, the central bank policies are are not as powerful because either interest rates are close to zero or the power of uh, quantitative easing has largely been used up because that balloon has been expanded and also what you can buy is limited. So that's when you're at more at the end of the longer term debt cycle. I want to I want to ask you about the current circumstances. Can you stick around a little bit? We sure. have a ton more questions. We've been speaking with Ray Dalio. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things debt crisis. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You could follow Ray on Twitter at Ray Dalio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Ray, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to following up 
with you since our last conversation. And I have so many questions we did not get to. Before we move away from uh, big debt crises, I, I just have to ask you, here it is, it's 2018. Has anybody learned anything about financial crises? Do you think we're better prepared next time or are we going to continue to make the exact same mistakes over and over again? Uh, we've learned some things, but not enough things. Uh, I think that I think people are more cautious. Cash is higher. Mm -hmm. uh, the lending is different. Um, I think uh, the banks have more capital. Uh, those things are good. I think uh, we also, uh, I think, may put some regulations in place that limit the policymakers' flexibilities to be able to deal with things. I think every crisis is a bit different, and you mm -hmm. can't write the rules so precisely that you can deal with it. Anyway, I don't think uh, we've materially changed those things. If I'm looking forward, I would say when we do our financial numbers pro forma, generally speaking, there's uh, much less of a bubble around. Back in 2007, when we did those numbers, we could see that a lot of debt pro problems and a debt crisis was going to come. So how do you contextualize something uh, like the student debt crisis, which is at all-time highs? Or is that not the sort of bubble that leads to a systemic issue? Well, what we do is we look at each of the different types. Mm -hmm. There are parts here that look like bubbles to us, uh -huh. and the question is, what is the, how big are they and what are the contagions? And so um, it, uh, you You're so methodical. You really, you bring an engineer's approach to this. It's the economic machine, which you've described previously, but even when looking at a specific type of debt, you want to know exactly how problematic it is, and is it something that's contained within its own silo, or does it have the ability to infect the whole system? Well, you need to do that. I mean, that's just the, you know, you have to be granular as well as mm -hmm. big picture. So, yeah, that's what we do. And uh, so when we go that, uh, I think the biggest risks that we see are um, the corporate uh, debt market has increased a lot. There's been a lot of funding to... Um, private equity firms, and so on. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, it, the, well, funding is good. <laughs> it depends on whether that debt is producing the cash flows and, and, and so on. If you have a decline in earnings, which will come from the next recession, fair much, a fair amount of that debt um, um, will be stress-tested and there'll be issues pertaining to that. Mm -hmm. And then the other um, particular imbalance that we see is the amount of sales that the U.S. Treasury is going to have to make. And so when we look about what those numbers will be, uh, particularly after the stimulus uh, starts to taper off. We mm -hmm. have a, we've we had a big one-time stimulus, particularly the through tax the cuts. tax cuts, mm -hmm. and particularly the corporate tax cuts. And that will have a fading impact at the same time as the budget deficits, hence the sales of bonds, will increase at the same time as the balance sheet is being contracted. When I do the calculations of who are the buyers of that and mm -hmm. what are their quantities, I see an imbalance in that. Huh. And so um, that is a form of problems that are existing. So three types of debt, you have household, you have corporate, you have government. Where's the biggest problem? Um, government and um, uh, the government debt and the corporate debt are the biggest problems. Um, so let me push back on you on that. And, and, 
and um, please do. But um, and what I'm saying is not in total, mm-hmm. okay, but government by and large in total, but um, corporates not in total, but in existing in certain pockets. Okay, that uh, was going to be the pushback because there seems to be a whole lot of corporate debt, some of which seems to be with good companies with good cash flows and a strong ability to service that debt, A-rated. And then, I don't know, let's call it the bottom 30% who are issuing a lot of debt that's uh, kind of junky and of dubious serviceability in the future. Or am I just being too negative? No, I think you're pretty, uh, you're pretty accurate on that. In other words, if you did triple B or double B mm-hmm. debt, and if you looked at... Um, Leverage loans, uh-huh. and see, which has become huge the past five years. That's right, and um, to finance also acquisitions, uh, a lot of private equity acquisitions, and so and so on. And you looked at uh, the collateralized loan obligation market, CLO market, um, in terms of those things. There are some there are vulnerabilities that exist there in terms of if in- incomes go down, and they're fairly covenant like. They they're very covenant like. Um, and so, and the big uh, growth in debt in this in, in cycle has been the corporate debt too, because when interest rates were lowered to a level that was below the return on equity, it paid to have buybacks mm-hmm. or to make acquisitions or um, and to go out there and have a private equity because I get a higher return on my that, equity, so it's a great financial That's opportunity. what you do with free money. You take it and you put it to where it's going to generate the highest return. That's right. And so um, a lot of that, um, that's where the big growth is. Two things about that is that can't continue, first of all, at that pace. Right. Okay. So um, that, that prop under the market will be disappearing. And then- because you get leveraged up to a certain point, you can't extrapolate that. Mm-hmm. But then in addition to that, you you know through experiences that there are some that you could see are going to be problems when earnings get hurt. And then there are some that you can't see because you haven't stress tested whether that was done well with good asset liability matches. You know, for example, a number of multinational companies bought companies in other countries and they finance that with dollar denominated debt. Right. And when the dollar goes up and the incomes that they're receiving is in local currency, you have an asset liability mismatch. Right. So there are a lot of asset liability mismatches that are out there that we sort of worry about. Those are the particular spots, I would say, that look uh, vulnerable. Not lo- Nothing like it looked to us like in 2007. But then if you go a little bit longer and you take the movement, um, we also have non-funded, li- non-debt liabilities in the form of pension liabilities and healthcare mm-hmm. liabilities. Both that, of which wildly underfunded. That are going to come. I mean, we're going to, a lot of promises, promises either be paid back in the form of debt or promises to use, have money to pay pensions and all of the, and, and Medicare. That, that all becomes uh, limited and that all, that produces you know, a greater squeeze. So it doesn't look as big like a big bang type of thing. Mm -hmm. My concern has to do with the fact that it is coming at the same time as there's populism and the political, because um, we're really right now at each other's throats, the the left, the right, the um, have the have. I want to push back on that also, but before I do that, I just have to come back to the corporate debt. 
what you're describing is sort of an echo boom following the original bubble and crash. Is that echo boom historically consistent? Does that always seem to happen after uh, a debt crisis and collapse? Do you always get, hey, things start to repair and here we go again? Or is this kind of unique to... Well, you always you always go through the cycle. Mm-hmm. And so when you're... Uh, when we are in a position where we're nine years into the expansion and central banks have bought 15, 16 trillion dollars worth of assets and made that cheap, you then mechanistically have what you're calling an echo boom. You have mm-hmm. that big boom that has taken place. And that and, always and, happens. And, and that, that always happens. Huh. That's why you always have cycles. You know, and, and that's why you come back to 1937 between the politics... It's ten years after. That's twenty years at ten, almost ten years so, after. So we're la- we're we're late in the short term cycle, relatively late. Mm-hmm. Although uh, uh, I would say we've got a, we're probably in the seventh inning of the short term cycle, this mm-hmm. business cycle. Uh, we're late in the long we're late in the long term cycle, meaning the amount of ammunition is less. Mm-hmm. The, these are facts. In other words, the interest rate, the right. QE thing, uh, um, and we do have. Um, a lot of populism and uh, and clashes about wealth and culture and those things internally much more than we did. And we're at the top or right near the top of the cycle and the markets and so on. So you can't imagine that things would turn down. And when things turn down, uh, my big worry about that following these cycles is that um, political conflict, social conflict worsens because that times get worse for everybody. And that's, and that's, that's an issue. So how do the politics play out? How, how are we with each other? Mm -hmm. Can we, can we approach that together or not? And then of course, then there's the um, power of the central bank to be helping us, which is less. So, so let me do the little bit of pushback and uh, you know, we kind of all exist in a media world, in a social network world. But when we see these studies that talk to Americans about a lot of hot button issues, once you get away from the crazy rhetoric and the divisiveness, we kind of all more or less have, you know, 60, 70, 80% agreement on some big issues. We all agree that there should be less abortions if there's a way to make that happen. We could disagree about whether or not it should be mandatory, but there's some agreement there. There's some agreement about some pretty common sense gun control laws. There's some agreement about pollution and climate change. There's a small group of people who don't believe it's man-made, and there's a small group of people who don't believe in smallpox vaccination. But by and large, most of America thinks it's a bad idea to spew chemical exhaust into the into the atmosphere that we all have to um, breathe. So taking what you've learned when you've put these principles of, of debt crises together, how can we get people outside of Twitter and Facebook to focus on what we have in common? Hey, we're all Americans. We all share a, a certain common belief system. How come we don't focus on what brings us together as opposed to what divides us? Well, first of all, I would disagree with us. Um, I think we have a higher level of conflict that created a conflict gauge. Uh, 
Uh-huh. The conflict gauge consists of a lot of different measures of conflict. So Go not, over that. that. I was uh, kind of leaning in that direction. Okay. But it would be um, the um, polarity within the uh, two political systems, the percentage of um, those who are adamantly in favor of their candidate uh, versus uh, adamantly opposed to the other candidate. Lock her it, up. That, it, that it sort would, of craziness. It would be, uh, there's a whole bunch of political things like uh, compromises in the bills that are right. there. Um, a whole bunch of those types of political things. Um, there are uh, social value measures. Um, in other words, um, lots of indicators of what the parties think of the other side, uh-huh. which is um, uh, antagonistic almost to the po- point of being uh, violent in terms of measuring uh, what one side is listening to the other side. Any, if, if you use, um, if you Google the word, um, Google count, the word war as distinct from the word peace or compromise and uh-huh. so on, all of those measures. I could rattle on a lot. Big differences in beliefs, okay? Big difference. Um, one of the things that used to bind us more together uh, was um, certain uh, reli- religious produced certain um uh, common beliefs, a Judeo-Christian right. kind of relief system, the appreciation for the immigrant. Um, these were things, in other words, where diversity was really the main sort of um, things. Anyway, I could rattle off the, those. We, so we created an index, and the index of conflict, which is just these measures piled up, um, shows that the conflict gauge is both within the country and within most countries, is greater than it was since the 30s, and also between countries. So what do you attribute that to? Is it Uh, is it just the nature of the debt cycle? Can we blame? Can you blame? I don't know. Social media, Fox News, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Donald Trump. Who gets the blame for that? Or is this just what happens when you have a big debt crisis? um, Yeah, I I think it happens over and over again because of that disenfranchised and also that I don't think they have much contact. I mean, it's totally understandable, I think, in the sense that um, capitalism right now is not working for the majority of Americans. And I'm a hardcore capitalist. I wish I could. But if you take the bottom 60%, I did a study of carving out what is it like the bottom 60% because I want to look at the majority. Those conditions are um, are bad. Another, I mean, there hasn't been income growth. There's, Thirty years, right? On a real yeah, basis. That's right. There's rising debt. Um, uh, there's rising death rates. Mm-hmm. De- death rates from opiates. Death rates by from Suicide, suicides yeah. and so on. And those those conditions. Less economic mobility. Though there's a whole gamut. That's right. We used to have a middle class that was on the assembly line, and it kind of worked. And so so we have a greater Economic polarity you have, um, so there's a disenfranchised group out there that's important. Um, we're also, uh, we don't have that same sort of contact with each other. You know, I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and Greenwich, uh, it's, so I think so exemplifies this. And my, um, we live in Fairfield County, Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, it's, I think, still the, the wealthiest state in the United States, anyway, right up there. Um, in that state, 
there is uh, one county that's rich and the rest of the state pretty much is poor. And it's going in terrible situation. My wife... She does uh, the work with the disengaged kids, the students who basically... They're just kind of coasting through school and not in doing anything. Yeah, thank you for remembering. Yeah, it's um, there's disengaged and there's disconnected. And the disengaged are the kid who attends school, but he doesn't study, doesn't take tests, or he fails, and that kind of is just sort of getting through. And then there's disconnected, which means they don't know where they are. They're no longer coming to the school district. 22% of the high school students are one of those. Those wow. kids are going to be twenty-two percent. Those kids are going to be on the street. They're going to be there's a uselessness. They have to share books, literally. I mean, in some cases, sharing pencils. They what, literally. What can you do to to f- change that? Sounds like a broken system, both on the educational level and the family level. How can you possibly fix that? Well, these are. Um, I'm still answering the last question on the division. Right. Right. And that division. And most people don't even have contact with it. Like I wouldn't have contact if it wasn't for my wife taking me there. And they and they're 25 miles up the road. You know, you're in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they're, and they're in, you go to Bridgeport or you go to Hartford and you look at what the daily shootings are, killings mm-hmm. in this place. Hartford, Connecticut used to be the- Insurance uh, capital. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a very fine place to be. So there is this polarity. We're talking about the reasons for the polarity. There's a lot of reasons. I think to answer your question, what you need is to recognize that, that, that that's a national emergency. In other words, the capitalism has got to work for the majority of the people. First of all, let's recognize that. Let's, and let's establish what that polar metrics around that. You, you have always been such a private individual most of your career. You're not a big, in the past, when the books came out, you started doing a little more media. This sounds like, Politics. I can't imagine any interest in running for, for office. Or are you the? I can't imagine any interest uh, right? in running for office. Now, either. some guy who sits about forty feet from where we're having a conversation has been talking about running in twenty twenty. Do you think the sort of technocratic approach, the the engineered approach that Bridgewater uses, or? Uh, Mike Bloomberg, who is the owner of Bloomberg LP, where we're sitting right now, do you think that approach can help solve some of these issues? And I was not planning on making a political commercial. I'm I'm sincerely asking a question. These have been very, very challenging problems for generations. Nobody seems to have figured out how to fix that. Well, I, I, I think a big I think big progress can be made. First, um, let's acknowledge it. Let's measure it, put the statistics. Let's use those measurements as metrics. In other words, to own it. So that now you say, if I change that number, I'm doing a good job, or if I'm not changing that number. And then let's bring about the various peoples and parties, um, various parties, uh, people most importantly, who are experts, who deal in those communities Mm -hmm. and understand them and make changes because I think there are a lot of things that can be done in my philanthropic efforts and I think probably in Mike's philanthropic efforts. You guys just did something with the uh, Ocean X. It's a $200 million investment to help uh, focus on keeping the oceans cleaner and and resolving some issues. That's right. And I think think we're also dealing with that population and and we see all the time great return on investment 
type mm-hmm. of things that could be done. And you just cannot imagine how the payoff can't be great on those right. types of things. I think you could put together public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. And that, that could be corporations or philanthropists together with the government to do high return on investment. I could rattle off a bunch of these types of things that would help to eliminate. In other words, things that pay for themselves. Right. And think about... You know the cost of getting th- not getting through high school and get, not getting a job in a, in an individual's lifetime. It's is, gonna it's gonna be a societal drag it, forever. It, it's an uh, it's about a million dollars per really? per per person. Wow. The uh, that that means everything from police to courts to jails and, that's right. and beyond. Incarceration is between eighty and one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. Amazing. is what happens and people if you don't have jobs and you're in a community that way. And um, like I'm, I support microfinance, and uh, for every dollar that I give to microfinance, twelve dollars is lent out to people in the first five years, and it keeps on going. That's because fantastic. they get paid back and so on. And they relent. If it. you look at um, um, the, the, the I, I could go on and on and on a list right. of those things, but somebody's got to take it on, right? In other words, and then the other thing is. Um, I think the important, the most important thing is to believe that we're, there's a country, that we are in it together, okay? Mm-hmm. That we need to um, not fight about things, but to uh, debate, argue, and then move on to compromises and to run the country for the whole. We need to have thoughtful disagreement and principles for dealing with it. Yeah. So you got me on a hot streak. Ray, but I, Ray I, you, you got my vote. So I'll tell you that much. I wish I know I have to you have to head out. Promise me you'll come back. I have a thousand more questions for you. I can talk to you for hours and hours. Um, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you for having me. It's always a delight. Um, <laughs> we have been speaking with Ray Dalio, co-founder of Bridgewater Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, uh, Overcast, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that puts this together each week. Medina Pawana is my audio engineer and producer extraordinaire. Uh, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.